Good evening, and welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to having yourself surgically altered to look more like a jungle cat. I didn't didn't write this. Nonetheless, it is the thinking alternative to that, whatever it is. Uh, For those of you unfamiliar with Socrates in the city, let me explain a bit. Uh, The Greek philosopher Socrates said rather famously that the unexamined life is not worth living. Of course, that's nonsense, but he was living in a different time, and that's just the way they thought back then. Thank you for laughing. Um... Of course, it is eternally true that the unexamined life is not worth living. So we at Socrates in the City thought it a good idea to help facilitate the examination of life, of our lives, of which Socrates spoke. So we frequently, monthly now, invite brilliant minds who are also brilliant speakers, because there are many brilliant minds that are not brilliant speakers. We insist on both, uh, to come and address us on some of the big and provocative questions of human existence. Questions such as the existence of God, the nature of God, the nature of faith, the relationship between faith and science, the problems of evil and suffering, and the question of human nature. No question is too large for us here at Socrates in the City. Although I I confess we've stayed out of the whole swift boat controversy, but that's probably... (laughs) We don't want to be political. Um, Tonight, of course, we'll be hearing from Father Richard John Newhouse on the fabulously provocative subject of whether an atheist can be a good citizen. I think the short answer might be yes, but I look forward to Father Newhouse's more in-depth and nuanced thinking on this subject. Uh, Father Newhouse is someone whose work I've been following uh, and someone whom I've been admiring for a number of years. Um, Please don't let that throw you. He's a good egg nonetheless, and I insist that you stay. I would, of course, be remiss um, in failing to mention that tonight's festivities, which are heavily subsidized, uh, are brought to you by Bounty, the quicker picker-upper. <laughs> also by Amana, makers of the Amana radar range. If it doesn't say Amana, it's not a radar range. Keep that in mind. It's also brought to you by a grant from littlegreenfootballs.com and the Pajama Hadeen. Does anybody get that left? I, I have to say, I just... The, phrase, the word pajama hadin is just too funny for me not to mention. To those of you who are not, you know, paying attention to these little things in our culture, um, the, the bloggers who sort of brought down CBS News in this recent uh, document uh, controversy were dismissed by the, the folks at CBS as, you know, these people on the Internet in their pajamas. And so some wag dubbed them the pajama hadin. Anyway, it's sort of uh, it's kind of fascinating the way the Internet has changed our lives. I actually got this haircut off the internet, but I don't want to go into that. Um, um, uh, But seriously, tonight and all these evenings are, in fact, heavily subsidized. We can't do this for $20 a person. If there is anyone out there who particularly likes what we do here at Socrates in the City and is interested in helping us continue to do what we do here, we'd be very pleased to speak with you after the event tonight or any time at all. Maybe you can find out how to be a patron of Socrates in the City. Tonight's event, I should tell you, is sponsored by the New Canaan Society. The New Canaan Society is a mysterious men's fellowship group that meets in New Canaan, Connecticut. I've been involved with them for almost 10 years now. I don't know who they are or what they do. Um, 
but I know that if the check clears, I'm sure I'm still a member in good standing. So I want to keep your fingers crossed, honey. Where is she? Um, all right. The fabulous piano music you've been listening to tonight is courtesy of Miss Sue Song. We're always very grateful to Sue, and I commend Sue's CDs, which are available for some ridiculous price, like ten dollars. Um, please, we don't uh, we don't pay Sue. She does this out of the goodness of her heart. So if you're interested uh, in picking up CD, we'd be grateful. Uh, for that. Uh, Sue's been with us for almost every single Socrates event, so I really am just tremendously grateful. I've many times tried to get other musicians to give Sue a break, but it just it never works out. They always cancel at the last minute. I was very close to getting the hip-hop artist Fat Joe um, <laughs> to be here tonight. I thought Fat Joe would be appropriate with this sort of Cole Porter-style lyrics, um, but as I say, that fell through. But, but there is a, a quote from his song, Lean Back, which I thought was appropriate for the evening. Um, quote, my fellas don't dance, they just pull up their pants and do the rock away, lean back, lean back, etc. close quote. Anyway, perhaps that's familiar to you. Um, anyway, we're going to work on getting him to give Sue a break. Um, enough nonsense. At last, let me tell you about our guest of honor, Father Richard John Newhouse. We are sincerely thrilled to have him with us tonight at Socrates in the City. For those of you unfamiliar with him and his work, let me say a few words. Uh, first of all, Father Newhouse lives right here in New York City. He is acclaimed as one of the foremost authorities on the role of religion in the contemporary world. He is president of the Institute on Religion and Public Life, a nonpartisan interreligious research and education institute here in New York City. He is editor-in-chief of the Institute's publication, First Things, a monthly journal of religion and public life. I had the august privilege of appearing in that great magazine just a few years back, and so I'm a little bit biased in thinking it an organ of exquisite aesthetic and moral taste, but it is. Um, seriously, seriously, though, if you're unfamiliar with First Things, uh, I commend it to you. It's a fabulous magazine. Um, over the years, Father Newhouse has played a leadership role in organizations dealing with civil rights, international justice, and ecumenicism. And if you're unfamiliar with ecumenicism, you can see me after class. I'll tell you what that is. Father, Father Newhouse has been the recipient of numerous honors from universities and other institutions, including the John Paul II Award for Religious Freedom. He has held presidential appointments in the Carter, Reagan, and first Bush administrations. In a survey of national leadership, U.S. News and World Report named Father Newhouse one of 32 most influential intellectuals in America. Of course, I always want to know who was 33. It's got to kill that guy, whoever it is. Um, but that's, uh, that's something significant. And uh, in September of 91, Father Newhouse was ordained a priest of the Archdiocese of New York. Among his best-known books are The Naked Public Square, Religion and Democracy in America. I think we have copies of most of these here. The Catholic Moment, The Paradox of the Church in the Postmodern World, and with Rabbi Leon Klinicki, Believing Today, Jew and Christian in Conversation. In 1995, Father Newhouse edited, along with my former boss, Charles Colson, a book called Evangelicals and Catholics Together Toward a Common Mission. His most recent book, which I know we have copies of, is As I Lay Dying, Meditations Upon Returning. Um, I could go on and on, and of course I have, and I apologize. So let's get, uh, let's get down to business here. A quick word on format. Uh, Father Newhouse will talk for 35 or 40 minutes, and then, as usual, we'll have about that same length of time for questions and answers. 
uh, which is always lots of fun. The microphone for that is in the back of the room. Please make your way to that uh, and keep your questions short, please. I say that every time and we have problems. We should be done, um, if all goes well, before 8.30. So ladies and gentlemen, someone whom I'm very proud to have with us here tonight and thrilled to count among us here in Manhattan generally, Father Richard John Newhouse. Thank you, Eric. Isn't that a marvelous introduction? I almost feel guilty for interrupting it. Um, the, um, he wonders who was number 33. I wonder who, how the U.S. News and World Report would know. Uh, the, uh, I should say, the unexamined life not worth living. Some of you might want to look up on the First Things website, firstthings.com. Uh, a marvelous article by one of our regular contributors, Gil Gilbert Mylander, a Lutheran uh, ethicist, uh, titled The Examined Life is Not Worth Living. And uh, it's, a, it's a very clever and uh, interesting and rewarding turn on uh, the difference between Socratic and Christian understandings of knowledge. Uh, what else? The uh, title is, Can Atheists Be Good Citizens? Now, I had thought of choosing something mm, mildly controversial, but finally I decided to go with this title. <laughs> now, I don't want you to stay in suspense as to the answer to the question. I would very much like to answer the question in the affirmative. It seems the decent and the tolerant thing to do. But before we can answer the question, we should first determine what is meant by atheism. And second, we must inquire more closely into what is required in being a good citizen. Now, there is atheism and there is atheism. The Greek, atheos. What did it mean? It meant one who is without God. It had less to do with whether one believed in God, in the sense that we use that word today, than with whether one believed in and reverenced the gods of the city or of the empire. For his perceived disbelief in the gods, Socrates was charged with atheism. The early Christians were charged with atheism for their insistence that there is no God other than the God of Israel, whom Jesus called Father, and who brings all other gods and goddesses and deities under judgment. In the eyes of the ancients, to be atheos was to be outside the civilizational circle of the civitas, of the civilized community. To be an atheist was to be subversive. The atheist was a security risk if not a traitor. Christians were thought to be atheists precisely because they professed the God who judges and debunks the false gods of the community. In the classical world, then, the answer to our question was decisively in the negative. No, an atheist could not be a good citizen. But those whom they called atheists, we do not usually call atheists today. Those whom we call atheists in the modern period believe that they are denying what earlier 
atheists, such as Christians, affirmed. That is to say, they deny the reality of what they understand believing Jews and Christians and Muslims to mean by God. Now, this form of atheism is a post-Enlightenment and largely 19th century phenomenon. It developed a vocabulary that was strongly prejudiced against those who believe in God. Note the very term, believer. Hmm? Believer is used to describe a person who is persuaded of the reality of God. The alternative to being a believer, of course, is to be a knower. Similarly, a curious usage developed with respect to the categories of faith and reason, the subjective and the objective, and in the realm of morals, a very sharp distinction between fact and value. Belief, faith, subjectivity, values, these were the soft and dubious words relevant to affirming the reality of God. On the other hand, knowledge, reason, objectivity, fact, these were the hard and certain words relevant to, to denying God. Now this tendentious vocabulary of modern unbelief is still very, very much with us today. And against such tendentious vocabulary, one must argue, as the great Michael Polanyi does in his classic work, Personal Knowledge, that everyone who thinks is a believer, the atheist no less than those whom we conventionally call believers. Necessarily following from such distortive distinctions are common assumptions about what is public and what is private. One recalls Alfred North Whitehead's axiom that religion is what a man does with his solitude. Even one so religiously musical, so to speak, as William James could write, quote, religion shall mean for us the feelings, acts, and experiences of individual men in their solitude. In this construal of matters, we witness a radical departure from the public nature of religion, whether that religion has to do with the ancient gods of the city or with the biblical Lord who rules over the nations. The gods of the city and the God of the Bible are emphatically public. The confinement of the question of God or the gods to the private sphere constitutes what might be described as political atheism. Many today who are believers in private and very devout believers in private have been persuaded or intimidated into accepting political atheism. And all of that powerfully contributes to what I have elsewhere described as the naked public square. Political atheism is a subspecies of practical or methodological atheism. Practical or methodological atheism is, quite simply, the assumption that we can get along with the business at hand without addressing the question of God one way or another. 
Here the, the classic anecdote, familiar to many of you, I'm sure, is the response of the Marquis de Plante uh, to Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, Napoleon observed that Laplace had written a huge book on the system of the universe without mentioning the author of the universe, to which Laplace re replied, Sire, I have no need of that hypothesis. When God has become a hypothesis, we have traveled a very long way from both the gods of the ancient city and the God of the Bible. Yet that distance was necessary to the emergence of what the modern world calls atheism. The remarkable thing is that the defenders of religion so uncritically accepted the terms of the debate set by the Enlightenment philosophes and their later imit imitators. Not all of them, thank God, recall Pascal's, Pascal's assertion of his belief in, quote, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Modern atheism is the product, in largest part, not so, not so much of anti-religion as of religion's replacement of the God of Abraham with the God of the philosophers and of the philosophers' consequent rejection of that ersatz God. Descartes determined that he would accept as true nothing that could be reasonably doubted, and Christians set about to prove, Christians of the time, set about to prove that the existence of God could not be reasonably doubted. Thus did the defenders of religion set faith against the doubt that is an integral and necessary part of the movement toward faith. The very phrase that is much debated, the existence of God, that phrase, the existence of God, gave away the game as though God were one existent among other existents, one entity among other entities, one actor among other actors, whose actions must conform to standards that we have determined in advance are appropriate to be in God. The transcendent, the ineffable, the totally other, the God who acts in history was tamed and domesticated in order to meet the philosopher's job description for the post of God. And not surprisingly, the philosophers decided that the candidates recommended by the friends of religion did not qualify for the post. The American part of the story is well told by James Turner of the University of Michigan in a wonderful book called Without God, Without Creed, The Origins of Unbelief in America. Quote, the natural parents of modern unbelief turn out to have been the guardians of belief, says Turner. Many thinking people came at last, quote, to realize that it was religion, 
not science or social change, that gave birth to unbelief. Having made God, Turner continues, having made God more and more like man, intellectually, morally, emotionally, the shapers of religion made it possible to abandon God and to believe simply in man. Turner's judgment is relentless. He goes on, he says, in trying to adapt their religious beliefs to socioeconomic change, to new moral challenges, to novel problems of knowledge, to the tightening standards of science, the defenders of God slowly strangled him. If anyone is to be arraigned, says Turner, if anyone is to be arraigned for deicide, it is not Charles Darwin, but his famous adversary, Bishop Samuel Wilberforce. Not the godless Robert Ingersoll, but the godly Beecher family, end quote. Now, in response to that kind of reductionist Protestantism, H.L. Mencken observed, he said, the chief contribution of liberal Protestantism to human thought is its massive proof that God is a bore. Now, that's unfair, of course, as Mencken was almost always unfair. But it is not untouched by truth. The God that was trimmed, accommodated, retooled in order to be deemed respectable by the, quote, modern mind, was increasingly uninteresting because unnecessary. The great German Lutheran pastor and martyr under Adolf Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, described that God as a God of the gaps, a God invoked to fill in those pieces of reality that human knowledge and control had not yet mastered. H. Richard Niebuhr, the elder and some would say wiser brother of Reinhold Niebuhr, well known for his withering depiction of the gospel of liberal Christianity. He said, it depicts a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. It's very perceptive. Absent our sin and divine judgment and redemption, it is not surprising that people came to dismiss the idea of God, not because it is implausible, but because it is superfluous. And yes, Mencken is right, finally boring. Now, in the varieties of atheism in the modern world, there is also the more determined materialist who asserts that there simply is nothing and can be nothing outside a closed and all-encompassing reality of matter and motion. This was the position of the um, late and unlamented dialectical materialism, as it was called, of communism. It is the position of some scientists today, especially those in the 
biological sciences who are wedded to Darwinism as a comprehensive belief system. Physicists, as it turns out, are increasingly and generally open to the metaphysical. And I warmly recommend in that connection, if you haven't read it, the critique of Richard Dawkins' atheism by physicist Stephen Barr in the um, current issue, the last issue of First Things. Perhaps more commonly, one encounters varieties of logical positivism, as it's called, that hold that since assertions about God are not empirically verifiable, or for that matter, falsifiable, they are simply meaningless. In a similar vein, analytical philosophers would instruct us that God talk, as it's called, God talk is quite precisely nonsense. Now, now this is not atheism in the sense to which we have become accustomed, since it claims that denying God is as much nonsense as affirming God. It is atheism, however, in the original sense of atheos, of being without God. Then there is the much more radical position that denies not only the possibility of truth claims about God, but the possibility of truth claims at all, at least as truth put in quotation marks, has usually been understood in our civilizational history. A prominent proponent of uh, this view in America is uh, Richard Rorty. Now, now, please take note that this is not atheism that pits reason against a possible knowledge of God. This is the atheism of unreason. Richard Rorty is sometimes portrayed and frequently portrays himself as something of an eccentric gadfly. In fact, along with um, Derrida and Foucault and other Heideggerian epigones of Nietzsche, Rorty is the guru of an academic establishment of great influence in our intellectual culture. Here we encounter the partisans, the apostles, of a relativism that denies it is relativism because it denies that there is any alternative to relativism, and therefore the term relativism is meaningless. They are, as they say, radically anti-foundationalist. That is to say, they contend that there are no conclusive arguments underlying our assertions about truth except the conclusive argument that there are no conclusive arguments underlying our assertions about truth. <laughs> now, to put it too briefly, but not, I think, inaccurately, truth, again in quotation marks, is in this view, truth is what the relevant community of discourse agrees to say is truth. And the goal in this way of thinking is self-actualization, indeed self-creation, the successful life, is the life lived as a novum, an unprecedented thing, a thing never before, an autobiography that has escaped what Richard Rorty calls the used vocabularies of the past. 
Now, this disposition has its academic strongholds in literary criticism and sectors of philosophy, but it undergirds assumptions that are very, very widespread in our intellectual culture. In some variations, it is frankly asserted that arguments claiming to deal with truth are but disguised strategies for the exercise of will in the quest for power. Whether the issue is uh, gender or sexual orientation or race, we are told that the purpose is to change the ideational power structure, which is presumably presently controlled by oppressors who disingenuously try to protect the status quo by appeals to objective truth and intersubjective reason. But you might be asking, are such people, Richard Rorty et al., are such people really atheists? You might ask them, in which case they, I can tell you by experience, will typically brush aside the question as not serious. For the theism upon which atheism depends is, in their view, not serious. As with relativism and irrationality, so also with atheism, the words only make sense in relation to the opposites from which they are derived, against which they are posited. Of course, privately or for purposes of a particular community's identity, any words might be deemed useful. One might even find it meaningful to speak about nature and nature's God, as the Declaration of Independence does. People, in this view, people can be permitted to talk that way, so long as they understand that such talk has no public purchase, no claim on anybody else's attention. What Rorty calls and admires as the, quote, liberal ironist, can employ any vocabulary, no matter how fantastical, so long as he does not insist that it is true in a way that claims the attention of others or limits their, quote, novel vocabularies. Now, there is, indeed, irony in the fact that some who think of themselves as theists, as believers in God, eagerly embrace the deconstructionism of this operative atheism. Today's cultural scene, as we all know, is awash in what are called new spiritualities. A recent anthology of uh, what is called America's New Spiritual Voices includes contributions promoting uh, witchcraft and ecological mysticism and devotion to sundry gods and goddesses and something very charming, and if I had the time for it, I'd look into it, presenting itself as Zen physio-psychoanalysis. Now, all are deemed to be usable vocabularies for the creation of the self. Now, sometimes these so-called new spiritualities are more socialized, more communal in nature, being focused less on the inner truth than on the ultimate truth of our sociology and sociality and of our encountering God in the other. Uh, my friend uh, Cardinal Avery Dulles 
tells of speaking in a parish one time, and there was a large banner in the chancel as he was speaking. And the banner said, God is other people. And uh, Cardinal Dulles says that he fervently wished that he had had a magic marker at that point so that he could have put an emphatic comma after the word other. God is other people. (laughs) However variously expressed, it is evident that many of the burgeoning spiritualities in contemporary culture are in fact richly religionized forms of atheism. And there is additional irony. Beyond pop spiritualities and Rortian nihilism, a serious argument is made today against a version of rationality upon which Enlightenment atheism was once premised. Here one thinks, for example, of uh, Alistair McIntyre and especially of his marvelous book, Three Rival Versions of Moral Inquiry. McIntyre effectively polemicizes against a version of rationality that understands itself to be universal and disinterested and autonomous and transcending tradition. Our situation, McIntyre says, is one rather of traditions of rationality in conflict, in rivalry. McIntyre's favored tradition is Thomism and its synthesis of Aristotle and Augustine. But he's prepared to join forces with the Richard Rorty's in debunking the hegemonic pretensions of the autonomous and foundational reason, so-called autonomous and foundational reason, that has so long dominated our elite intellectual culture. The idea is that after the great debunking and all cards of rival tradition are put on the table, then we can all have at it in a level playing field. And presumably the tradition that can provide the best account of reality that is most persuasive to most people will win out. Enormous respect I have for Alistair McIntyre, but I think this is a risky game. It's a game in which many uh, Christians and observant Jews are engaged today. It is true that in exposing the fallacious value neutrality or claims to value neutrality of autonomous and traditionless reason, it is true that then intellectual discourse is opened up to the arguments of an eminently reasonable theism. But in the resulting free-for-all, it is open to so much else. It is made vulnerable to the Nietzschean will to power that often sets the rules, and those rules are designed to preclude the return of the gods or God in a manner that claims public allegiance. For one tradition of reason, Thomism, for example, to form a coalition, even a temporary coalition, with unreason in order to undo another tradition of reason, that of the autonomous mind, is a perilous tactic. And yet, something like this may be the future of our intellectual culture. In our universities, 
Christians, Jews, and increasingly Muslims, will be free to contend for their truths, just as Marxists, of whom there are indeed a great many left, and Nietzscheans and devotees of the great earth goddess are free to contend for, quote, their truths. It is a matter of equal opportunity propaganda. But, and again, there is delicious irony here, the old methodological atheism and value neutrality against which the revolution was launched may nonetheless prevail. In other words, every party will be permitted to contend for their truths so long as they acknowledge that they are their truths and not the truth. Each will be permitted to propagandize. Indeed, each will have to propagandize if it is to hold its own because it is acknowledged in advance that there is no common ground for the alternative to propaganda. And the alternative to propaganda is reasonable discourse. But there is, I believe, uh, reason to fear that faith in God, when it plays by the rules of the atheism of unreason, a reasoned faith in God will be corrupted and eviscerated. The method becomes the message. Contemporary Christian theology already provides, Protestant and Catholic in its many variations, already provides all too many instances of the peddling of truths that are in the service of truths other than the truth of the God of Israel. Now, I have touched briefly on some of the many faces of atheism, of living and thinking atheos, without God or the gods. There is the atheism of the early Christians who posited God against the gods. There is the atheism of enlightenment rationalists who committed to undoubtable certainty, rejected the God whom religionists designed to fit that criterion, there is the practical atheism of Laplace, who had no need of, quote, that hypothesis in order to get on with what he had to do. There is the weary atheism of those who grew bored with liberalism's God created in the image and likeness of good liberals. And there is the more thorough atheism of Nietzschean will to power. And finally, there is the atheism of putative theists who peddle religious truths that are true for you if you find it useful to believe them true. Now, we come back then to the question, can these atheists be good citizens? It depends, I suppose, on what is meant by good citizenship. We may safely assume that the great majority of those who say they are atheists abide by the laws, pay their taxes, and may even be congenial and helpful neighbors. But can a person who does not acknowledge that he is accountable to a truth higher than the self, a truth that is not dependent upon the self, can such a person really be trusted? John Locke, among many, many other worthies, thought the answer to that was no. However confused was Locke's theology, 
He and others were sure that the social contract was based upon nature, upon the way the world really is. They were convinced that respect for a higher judgment, even an eternal judgment, was essential to good citizenship. It follows that an atheist could not be trusted to be a good citizen, according to Locke and others, and therefore could not be a citizen at all. Locke is rightly celebrated as a champion of religious toleration, but not of irreligion. Quote, John Locke, Those are not at all to be tolerated who deny the being of a god. This in his famous letter concerning toleration. He continues, Promises, covenants, and oaths, which are the bonds of human society, can have no hold upon an atheist. The taking away of God, though but even in thought, dissolves all. End quote. The taking away of God dissolves all. Every text is susceptible to becoming pretext, every interpretation a strategy, and every oath a deceit. James Madison, in his famed memorial and remonstrance with regard to religious freedom, of 1785, wrote to similar effect. It is always being forgotten that Madison and the other founders, for them, religious freedom is an unalienable right that is premised upon an unalienable duty. Madison wrote, he says, It is the duty of every man to render to the Creator such homage and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. This duty is precedent both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the claims of civil society, said Madison. Then follows a passage that could hardly be more pertinent to the question that brings us together. Madison wrote, Before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered as a subject of the governor of the universe. And if a member of civil society who enters into any subordinate association, he must always do it with a reservation of his duty to the general authority. Much more, says Madison, must every man who becomes a member of any particular civil society do it with a saving of his final allegiance to the universal sovereign. In our founding period, state constitutions could and did exclude atheists from public office. It is well worth recalling, however, how much the founders had in common with respect to religious and philosophical beliefs, while a few, Jefferson notably, were sympathetic to milder or stronger versions of deism. And... The fact is, most were rigorous Calvinists in the Puritan tradition, and almost all assumed a clearly Christian and clearly Protestant Christian construal of reality. In the language of philosophical discourse, the founders were, quote, moral realists, which is to say they assumed the reality of a good, not of their own contriving. This is 
amply demonstrated from many, many sources, not least, of course, the Declaration and the Constitution, and especially the preamble to the Constitution. The good, what was called the good, was for the founders a reality not of their own inventing, nor was it merely the so-called conventionalism of received moral tradition. The founders' notion of the social contract was not a truncated and mechanistic contrivance of calculated self-interest. Their understanding was much more in the nature of a compact, premised upon a sense of covenantal purpose, guiding what they called this Novus Ordo Seclorum, this new order for the ages. That understanding of a covenant encompassing the contract was in a time of supreme testing for America, brought to full and magisterial articulation by Abraham Lincoln. The Constitution, he proposed, represented not a deal struck, but a nation so conceived and so dedicated. In such a nation, an atheist, I would suggest, can be a citizen, but not a good citizen, not really. For a good citizen does more than abide by the laws. A good citizen is able to give an account, a morally compelling account, of the regime of the constitutional order of which he is part. He is able to justify its defense against its enemies and to convincingly recommend its virtues to citizens of the next generation so that they, in turn, can transmit that regime to citizens yet unborn. This regime, this order of liberal democracy, of republican self-governance, is not self-evidently good and just. An account, a moral account, must be given. Reasons must be given. And they must be reasons that draw authority from that which is higher than ourselves, our own convenience, our own conventions. They must be able to draw authority from that which transcends us, from that to which we are ultimately obliged. Those who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus turn out to be the best citizens. Those who were once called atheists, the Christians, are now the reliable defenders not of the gods, but of the good reasons for this regime of ordered liberty. Such people are the best citizens, not despite, but because their loyalty to this political order is qualified by a loyalty to a higher order. Among the best of the good reasons they give in justifying this regime is that it is a regime that makes a sharply limited claim upon the loyalty of its citizens. The ultimate allegiance of the faithful is not to the regime or to its constituting texts, but to the city of God and the sacred texts that guide our path toward that end for which we were created. 
And so such citizens are dual citizens, dual citizens in a regime that, as Madison and others well understood, was designed for such dual citizenship. When the regime forgets itself and tries to reestablish the gods of the civitas, even if it is in the name of liberal democracy, then the followers of the God of Abraham have no choice but to be faithful and, in being faithful, to run the risk of once again being called atheists. As for what is meant by atheism in the modern era, the conclusion is that the American experiment in constitutional democracy was not conceived and dedicated by atheists and cannot today be conceived and dedicated anew by atheists. In times of testing, and every time is a time of testing for this experiment in ordered liberty, in times of testing, a morally convincing account must be given. And you may well ask, convincing to whom? And one obvious answer in a democracy, although not the only answer, is a morally convincing count, account must be given to a majority of our fellow citizens. Giving such an account is required of good citizens. And that is why I reluctantly conclude atheists cannot be good citizens. Thank you. Thank you so much, Father Newhouse. We have a few minutes uh, for questions and answers. I hope that uh, there are a few people out there with good questions. Is there a microphone? Where's the sound person? Is there? Okay, there's the microphone. So uh, if anyone... Uh, would be brave enough to ask the first question. It, it doesn't have to relate to anything that you just heard. Just any question um, would be fine. Um, perhaps, perhaps, yeah, the whole Internet thing. Um, if you have a question, why don't you uh, step up to that microphone, John, and Taylor has a question. And we've got, um, thank this you. is about the um, question of secularism as it relates to what's happening today in Iraq and France with the two hostages who are being, French ho journalists who are being held hostage, to demand that France abrogate its law forbidding the wearing of Muslim headscarves, Jewish um, head, um, headgear, and Christian crosses in uh, France's uh, public schools. And I would just, the question, I guess, is um, do you have any thoughts on this uh, problem? I have any thoughts on this? Yeah, surprise, surprise, I do. Uh, France has a uh, peculiar tradition uh, stemming from 1789 and the French Revolution of a laicist, uh, impassioned, laicist, anti-clerical, anti-Christian, and most specifically anti-Catholic um, character. And this is now extended to Islam for very good reasons because the presence of Islam not only in France, but in Germany and other places, poses the very real prospect of what a recent book calls Eurabia. That is to say, um, the reality of Islam becoming, in public and in law, the dominant uh, cultural religious force uh, in France and Germany and some other countries. Bernard Lewis, 
who those of you who read first things know uh, I hold in highest regard as, for his writings on uh, the clash of civilization, Islam, Christianity, with the West and the rest and all that. Um, Bernard Lewis, a very cautious and scholarly and uh, prudent man, recently observed after a long, long reluctance to say it, that in his judgment, by the end of this century, most of Europe will be Muslim. Just the demographic, cultural, political realities suggest that. That is, uh, if that happens, a development of monumental importance for the future of Western civilization, for the future of uh, the Christian gospel, and for the future of the role of America in the world. I'm not carrying a copy of Nietzsche with me, but in um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, um, Nietzsche said that, somewhat lamented the situation at the early part of the century with God being sort of, and religion being on the wane as he saw it, and said that it was an awesome task to try to replace um, the religious values with a set of values of your own. And I was wondering, if one were able to do that as an atheist, um, then could an atheist be a good citizen? Um, I think the answer continues to be no, because all of us are uh, contextualized, which is simply to say that we are all parts of a particular uh, cultural, political, social circumstance. And to be a good citizen of this, and I hope throughout my paper it was apparent I was talking about being a good American citizen. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean, now one might change the argument significantly relative to other uh, circumstances politically and culturally. Uh, no, I, I think Nietzsche, um, Nietzsche was a, a genius, needless, or should be needless to say. I mean, a mad genius perhaps, and certainly toward the end of his life, truly mad by any criteria. But um, he firmly, unlike many atheists, firmly rejected a specifically Christian God, the God of the cross, the, uh, as the God of underlings and weaklings, who were not worthy of what human beings, in his um, understanding, were capable of being. Um, and we know the values with which Nietzsche replaced the vacuum left after he had swept the field of Christian morality and uh, Christian faith. And while it would be reckless, uh, and some people have very recklessly, uh, drawn a direct drawing the dots between Nietzsche and, and uh, the Third Reich and Adolf Hitler, there is no denying that the chief ideologists of the Nazi movement did see in Nietzsche a kind of at least veneer of philosophical justification for what they were doing. When you create a vacuum, when you, when, you, when you create a naked public square, what I call mm -hmm. the naked public square, a public life denuded of the moral discourse, including the moral discourse that is religiously grounded in a society. When you create that vacuum, um, you have destroyed the very bonds 
what Lincoln called the mystic cords that bind us together with the dead and with those not yet born. And uh, even if one believed the American experiment and the American constitutional order fundamentally wrongly founded, and there are people who believe that, Christians and others, we have no choice in our historical moment but to accept responsibility in our context in a very keen awareness of our obligation to both those who have gone before us and those who will come after us. Uh, as, as someone who's been both Lutheran and Catholic, I was curious to know if um, you could recommend any resources that uh, set out uh, as fairly as possible the positions on, on both sides and the uh, arguments or evidence that each side marshals. Lutheran and Catholic. Protestant Catholic. Protestant Catholic. Oh, there, there are a host of good things. I, I'm not, I mean, most of them tend to be, at least up until the last couple of decades, highly polemical and distortive and almost by definition unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot in the uh, ecumenical era to which Eric reviewed, uh, Eric referred, tend to the opposite sin of fudging and uh, 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 gliding over differences of very great importance. A particular book that deals specifically with the... There's a, there's a lovely book. It's reviewed in the current issue of First Things. See, almost everything you'd be interested in is in, in First Things. Uh, and it's on a specific uh, and very important Catholic um, uh, Protestant difference on what we understand by Mary, who we understand Mary to be and the role of Mary in the faith. And it's done by a, an evangelical by the name of Longenecker and a Catholic by the name of somebody may know here. But again, go to the website of First Things. It is a font of wisdom. <laughs> yes, I, I've noticed. Thank you. Good. The question is, in, um, in over-identifying the faith with empire, there can be um, gross misrepresentations of the kingdom in terms of its political economic ramifications. And therefore, in radical reformation history, there's also been uh, resistances to identification with existing status quo. So therefore, the flip side of your question is, well, if atheists don't necessarily make good citizens, th- the rest of the people, the 50% that are the, tr- the pew, uh, warming the pews, do they necessarily make good citizens, the theists? Oh, no. I mean, obviously, uh, not necessarily at all. Uh, I, I did a um, lecture somewhere some years ago on this title, and Jules Pfeiffer the cartoonist for, uh, he still does for the nation, I think, right? Uh, But you've seen Jules Pfeiffer cartoons. And he got wind of this somewhere. I guess it was in a news story or whatever. And he did a full-page cartoon ridiculing uh, 
the uh, argument that I was making, and one after was just listed one after another all kinds of religious leaders and prominent Christians who had done terrible and criminal things in the course of uh, the last several months. Well, no, I mean, certainly no one is going to say that, uh, I mean, I would expect that the overwhelming majority of people in our uh, jails are uh, believing Christians, uh, although there is an unusually high incidence of Muslims. But uh, so we're not saying that uh, all Christians are good citizens. I thought you were going to ask a different and a very important question, that is the degree to which there is a danger that we identify our responsibility to the American experiment with a notion of America's providential purpose or manifest destiny in the world. And the answer is that, yes, that is always a danger. It has at times been a danger. But I would say today the greater danger is that we have forgotten that there is an understanding of providence in Christian history and in Christian theology, and that we believe in a God who is active in history, although we do not discern his purposes with any degree of precision with regard to particular, especially world political historical events. And uh, that, therefore, it is very important in my mind that we continue to have uh, in the Pledge of Allegiance under God these, quote, trivial, symbolic things of, quote, ceremonial deism, as the Supreme Court says, are things of extraordinary importance because they symbolize not that America is a nation somehow favored and privileged and elected as Israel or the church is elected, but they symbolize rather exactly that America is under judgment. To be under God is to be under both his mercy and his judgment. And um, it's a matter of uh, vital importance to the revitalization of the American liberal experiment in democracy, if indeed it can be revitalized, that we have, as the founders had, that sense of historical and moral responsibility to that which transcends us. Um, we're going to have to go uh, in order, I'm afraid, so let's keep our questions uh, brief. Well, there's been a line here. Keep our answers we'll, brief. There were several people. Yeah, hi. Um, X. I'm... Father, I'm, I'm an elected uh, lay leader with the congregation at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, which makes me an Episcopalian stroke Anglican. And uh, while we are a large denomination, some 90, 100 million around the world, we would be deluding ourselves if we did not link that size to the expansion of the British Empire and its political growth, uh, that the church moved slightly one inch behind the armies. Uh, and, and one could say that a lot of the map of religions around the world have been linked to uh, the, the mighty power of Rome and Constantinople and other denominations and religions around the world. I guess my question is that is atheism not necessarily always linked to theology and complex issues, but in some cases simply a fatigue of the sort of church and state relationship and and the battles therein and what has come out of it in a very non-religious sense over history. 
Uh, yeah, I think the answer to your question is right. And one of the reasons for the vitality, of the comparative vitality of religion and Christianity specifically in this country is that we have not had a state church. And uh, the church has unwisely, in, uh, in my judgment, in times of history, allied itself with uh, state power. Now, at the same time, you have to put yourself into a the historical circumstance of the people involved. For example, uh, it's very easy today, and indeed almost all theologians and religious thinkers, condemn, dismiss out of hand, Constantin... Constantin... I can't even pronounce it. Constantinianism. Uh, you know, the... Uh, fourth century uh, quasi-establishment of Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire. Um, and yet, and here we come to the question of providence and how hidden and mysterious are God's ways, did not God use you know, that association in remarkable ways for good? Uh, for good in a whole realm of areas. And similarly, did not God possibly use uh, the British Empire for good in ways that may have been much, much uh, better than the intentions or the motives of the people who were running the, the empire? Our basic disposition as Christians is, I, I would suggest, uh, my disposition is that of St. Augustine. In the 5th century, it is not true, as many people think, that when Augustine was writing The City of God, that the Roman Empire was falling around behind, around his ears, falling down behind, around his ears. That's not true. It was in trouble, but he thought it was still strong and had a great future. And yet he had this powerful sense, and that gets back to what I talked about as dual citizenship, that is very consonant with what Madison is saying in the memorial and remonstrance. A powerful sense that we live in two communities, two cities, as Augustine put it, the city of man and the city of God. And they are not neatly separated. They are entangled in very, very troubling and sometimes confusing and sometimes conflicted ways. The city of man, whether it be the Roman Empire, whether it be American liberal democracy, whether it be anything else, is always going to be the kingdom of what Augustine called the libido dominandi, the lust for power and glory. That's, that will always be the case. And yet there are some cities of man that are better than others, some ways that are better ordered than others. And it is my belief and conviction, but this is a political historical judgment, not a theological judgment, that the American experiment is well-ordered, both for its potentiality for doing justice to human dignity and the right ordering of society and to the freedom of the church to flourish as uh, its own mission requires. I'm going to try to make this as short as I can. I had a longer question, but I know we can't do that, so I'm going to try to make it this as, as succinct as I can. As a preacher of the gospel myself, I was preparing a sermon to be delivered at the Duke University Chapel about um, the law of God or the, the command of God concerning, concerning the love for one's enemy and proper conduct toward one's enemy. 
and I was trying to find voices, testimonies, witnesses uh, who would speak for God in such a human situation. I found five from my reading of the newspaper and listening to C-SPAN and the network news. I found five voices against state-sponsored torture or state-permitted torture or torture allowed to take place under uh, unheeding or inattentive commanders. And not one of those five voices came from within the church. Four of them were, I don't know what they are, but certainly not observant Jews or Christians. Uh, the fifth one is well known for his atheism in your second sense. This was very disappointing to me. It seems to me that the church has, been, has failed us in this time of crisis, international crisis. And I offer that as a witness and wonder what you would say about it. Well, I, I confess I'm a little surprised because, I mean, I could give you a list of, uh, had we time, 500 writers, theologians, bishops, uh, etc., who would uh, very strongly and compellingly uh, make the case against torture ever being morally permissible. Um, I have a piece on this in the current first things. Uh, um, so, no, I mean, I'm very, I'm troubled that Alan Dershowitz of Harvard Law School, uh, who is not an observant Jew, um, has written, I think, a um, deeply, deeply wrong-headed book, uh, urging us to get used to the idea that we're going to have to accommodate ourselves to torture as a normal means of waging war against terror, etc. And I'm sorry to say some of my friends at Commentary Magazine have written in a similar vein. Uh, I think they're wrong, and I, uh, certainly the teaching of the Catholic Church is the torture, the deliberate infliction of pain, humiliation upon others with the intent to degradate them, that is, to violate their human dignity is always and everywhere wrong. And we must never get used to it. And we must never contra Alan Dershowitz. We must never uh, let ourselves uh, experiment with the limits. Sinful human beings that we are, and sin-riddled institutions, as all political and military and police institutions also are, uh, we we human beings cannot be trusted with experimenting with torture. Thank you so much. I was very, you said we could bring our questions beyond the scope of tonight's talk. And (laughs) mine, I... (laughs) Thank you, Eric. Um, What didn't the scope of the talk touch on? (laughs) Yes, no, this is in terms of our own... um, spiritual journeys. Um, I'm a Catholic, and yet most of my time, I mean, I I worship, I belong to a Catholic parish. My own sister became a Presbyterian minister, and I was wondering what, after 17 years as a Lutheran, was the major focus in your becoming an ordained Catholic priest? Well, as you might imagine, it's a long story, but very simply... um, 
I became, uh, I entered into full communion with the Catholic Church in order to be more fully uh, the Christian that I was as a Lutheran. Um, I became a Catholic when I could no longer explain to myself or to others why I was not a Catholic. Thank you very much. (laughs) As a matter of fact. (laughs) Uh, Father Newhouse, thank you for a very wonderful and uh, thoughtful and clear talk. Um, The question that faces us going forward in the next couple of months is very crucial. And in the light of Lincoln's great word of that mystic thread that we should try to discern, what would you say about the current political election? Are we permitted to? No, that's not. <laughs> the uh, one aspect of that, of course, is the very lively interest um, around the belated but increasingly bold initiatives of the Catholic bishops with respect to public figures, politicians, and others who openly, persistently, publicly, defiantly reject the church's teaching with respect to the defense of the uh, innocent, um, in the case of abortion, uh, euthanasia, uh, embryonic stem cell research. My, My own view is that the bishops are at long last doing their job And the Catholic position is that the bishops cannot tell you, nobody can tell you, the church cannot tell you how to vote, for example. Uh, It is orthodox Catholic teaching, rock-bottom firm Catholic teaching, that a person must act in accord with his conscience. And at the same time, it is rock-bottom Catholic teaching that a person must form his conscience rightly. And in the formation of conscience... The first responsibility of bishops is to defend uh, and articulate the fullness of the faith without compromise. And that is what the whole controversy is about. It ought not to be controversial at all. It, It really is, if only this had happened a long time ago, and my late dear friend, much missed, John O'Connor, who ordained me to the priesthood, Uh, When in 1984, exactly 20 years ago, you recall that uh, then-Representative Geraldine Ferraro was running as vice president. And uh, she said publicly on a number of occasions that there's more than one Catholic position on abortion and that you can be pro-abortion and a faithful Catholic. To which John O'Connor, I think, some people, of course, accused him of meddling in politics and violating church, state church. Said, There's all nonsense. Very carefully, very lucidly, very calmly, he said the issue that Representative Ferraro has put on the public table is what is Catholic teaching. And I, being the Archbishop of New York, feel I should perhaps be allowed to say something about that. (laughs) And uh, among the things I have to say is that what Ms. Ferraro is saying is simply not true. That's not Catholic teaching. That's what the bishops are doing now. They have to, you can't have, same as the first time in 44 years that we've had a Catholic. There's only the third Catholic and the first time in 44 years now. And if you have a Catholic who says, I am a good Catholic, 
And I also stand before NARAL and Planned Parenthood in their meetings and pledge allegiance to their cause, which is explicitly and overtly premised against, in hostility to, the Catholic Church. It just creates scandal. That's, that's the Catholic phrase, which doesn't mean scandal as in sex abuse scandal or bank robberies or whatever. Scandal means to confuse the faithful about the truth. And the bishops have the obligation then to encounter that person, engage that person in dialogue, persuasion, and to try to move that person toward a recognition of his or her error and to repentance and amendment of life. But at some point, at some point, and the bishop's statement in June is very careful about this and allows for a lot of complexities and prudential judgment of bishops in particular circumstances. At some point, if that person persistently, publicly, defiantly says, I reject the church's teaching that abortion, for example, is intrinsically evil, that it is always and everywhere evil to deliberately take an innocent human life. I reject that. That at some point that person has to be told persuasively, compellingly, lovingly, my friend, you are jeopardizing your relationship with the church. And if Catholics are right about this, your relationship with God. This is a very solemn thing. And you should not present yourself at the Eucharist, at the Holy Communion, which is the central act of representing one's full communion with, solidarity with, the faith of the Church, until you've taken care of this problem. That's the pastoral responsibility of the bishops. And if it has political fallout one way or another, that finally is the responsibility of those who take a extremist, don't give an inch, uh, litmus test uh, position with regard to the support of the unlimited abortion license.